Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. On that note, I'd like to say welcome to Michael Matthews and Joanna Parker, both of whom became patrons this week. Thank you. Also, to Monty. Monty, I emailed you back, but your email was full, so you weren't able to get my message. So if you could clear out some messages, I'll be able to answer your questions. So send me an email once you've cleared up some space in your email folders. Don't forget, I have other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, Pucks and Cups, Canada's Great War, and Coast to Coast, available on all podcast platforms. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I truly appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. You can also find YouTube videos every week by going to youtube.com slash c slash canadianhistoryx. And if you want to find hundreds of articles about Canada's history, just go to CanadaEHX.com. There have been many, many shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Hundreds and hundreds. And most Canadians, and most Americans, can't name many of them. But there is one that most anybody can name. And it's all thanks to this song. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, Fellas, it's too rough to feed you. Of all those shipwrecks, arguably none are more famous than the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. The mystery of its sinking, the total loss of life, and the iconic song by Gordon Lightfoot have helped keep it in the modern-day minds long after it sank. Now, the ship was American, but it sank in Canadian waters, right on the line, actually, and it's become an iconic part of Canadian lore. So for that reason, this week, I'm looking at the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The story of the Edmund Fitzgerald begins in 1957 when the Northwest Mutual Life Insurance Company began to invest in iron and minerals. The company would contract the Great Lakes Engineering Works to build a ship for them that was within a foot of the maximum length allowed for passage through the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was soon to be completed. This would be the first investment of its type by an American life insurance company. The Edmund Fitzgerald was the first Laker ship to be built to the maximum St. Lawrence Seaway size, and it cost $7 million to build, about $50 million today, and measured 225 meters long, 23 meters wide, with a 7.6 meter draft. Capable of carrying 26 long tons of cargo, it was the biggest ship on the Great Lakes and quickly earned the title of Queen of the Lakes. The propeller alone weighed 27 tons and was 19 feet in diameter. For the workers who would be on the ship, they were treated to luxurious interiors unusual for a freighter of the time. 
Deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, draped over portholes and leather chairs in the guest lounge were just some of the items that made the lives of the crew and passengers much easier. The galley contained two dining rooms, and there was even air conditioning. As for the name, that comes from the president and chairman of the board for Northwestern Mutual, Edmund Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald's grandfather had been a lake captain, and his father owned a dry dock company that built and repaired ships. The day prior to the launch, Ken Garland, the mechanical superintendent of Great Lakes Engineering Works, would state, quote, We sure are proud of her. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't that a dandy-looking stern? End quote. Garland would say of the upcoming launch of the ship, quote, I won't sleep tonight. That's how worried I am. None of us will sleep. It isn't that we really expect anything to go wrong, but there's always that chance. End quote. On June 7, 1958, the Edmund Fitzgerald was launched in a ceremony in front of 15,000 people. Perhaps as a sign of its later disaster, the launching event had several problems. For one, it took Elizabeth Fitzgerald, the wife of Edmund, three tries to break a champagne bottle over the bow. Then there was a delay of 36 minutes in the launching, and once it launched, the ship created a wave that hit the spectators, and then the ship hit the pier before righting itself. One man watching the launch would suffer a heart attack and later died. Some said it looked as though the ship was trying to climb right out of the water. For the next 17 years, the ship would work through the Great Lakes, earning the name of the Titanic of the Great Lakes. By the time 1975 came along, the ship had done 748 round trips of the Great Lakes and covered a distance equal to 44 trips around the world. Frederick Stonehouse would write of what it was like for guests on the ship, stating, quote, Stewards treated the guests to their entire VIP routine. The cuisine was reportedly excellent, and snacks were always available in the lounge. A small but well-stocked kitchenette provided drinks. Once each trip, the captain held a candlelight dinner for the guests, complete with mess-jacketed stewards and special clam-digger punch. End quote. The ship was also seen as one of the safest on the Great Lakes during its first decade. In 1969, the ship received an award for running eight years without time off for worker injury. Things began to change slowly after that point. In 1969, she would run aground, and in 1970, she collided with the SS Hochelaga. That same year, she struck the wall of a lock, then did so again in 1973 and 1974. Also in 1974, she lost her original bow anchor in the Detroit River. Then came November 1975, when the ship would pass into legend. On November 9, 1975, Yemen Fitzgerald left Superior, Wisconsin. Commanded by Ernest McSorley, she was heading straight for Zug Island, Michigan carrying 26,116 long tons of ore pellets. At the same time, a November gale was predicted to hit the Great Lakes, but it was expected to pass south of Lake Superior by 7 a.m. on November 10th. By 7 p.m. on November 9th, gale warnings were issued for all of Lake Superior, and the Edmund Fitzgerald, along with the Arthur M. Anderson, which was traveling the same route, altered their routes northward to take advantage of the shelter of the Ontario shore. At 1 a.m. on November 10th, the Edmund Fitzgerald reported winds of 96 kilometers an hour and waves reaching 10 feet high. At the same time, McSorley reduced the ship's speed because of the conditions. The captain of the Wilfred Sykes, who was listening to the radio conversation between the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson, would say that he was surprised to hear McSorley reduce speed. According to Captain Dudley Paquet, McSorley said over the radio, quote, We're going to try for some leave from Isle Royale. You're walking away from us anyway, I can't stay with you. End quote. At 2 a.m., the gale warning was upgraded to a storm warning with winds as high as 93 kilometers an hour. By 3 a.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald was pulling ahead of the Arthur M. Anderson. Around the same time, the two ships began to hit the center of the storm and shifting winds that would drop in speed suddenly and the wind direction changed from south to northwest. 
By 2 p.m. the next day, the Arthur M. Anderson was reporting heavy snow that reduced visibility, and the captain lost sight of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was 26 kilometers ahead. At 3.30 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed the Arthur M. Anderson to state the ship was taking on water, and he had lost a fence railing and two vent covers. The ship was beginning to develop a list, and the six bilge pumps were running continuously to discharge water. McSorley then stated he would slow the ship down so the Arthur M. Anderson could catch up. At 4.10 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed Captain Jesse Cooper on the Arthur M. Anderson to state that he had a radar failure and asked the captain to keep track of him as he was now going blind on the water. The captain of the Arthur M. Anderson began to direct McSorley towards Whitefish Bay. McSorley then radioed the Coast Guard to find out if the Whitefish Point Light and Navigation Beacon were operational and he was told they were inactive. Captain Cedric Woodard of the Ephorus would state after the disaster he heard McSorley say on the radio not to allow anyone on deck and, quote, I have a bad list. I've lost both radars and I'm taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in, end quote. By this point, ships were logging sustained winds of 107 kilometers per hour, with waves as high as 25 feet, including rogue waves as high as 35 feet. At 7.10 p.m., the Arthur M. Anderson radioed the Edmund Fitzgerald of an upbound ship and asked how the ship was doing. Captain McSorley would respond, quote, We are holding our own, end quote. This was the last message to ever come from the Edmund Fitzgerald. No distress signal was heard. About 10 minutes later, the Arthur M. Anderson could no longer reach the Edmund Fitzgerald by radio, and she had disappeared from radar. According to some news reports, a white flare was seen in the area of the Edmund Fitzgerald soon after the last message. In the preliminary inquiry a few weeks after the sinking, Captain Cooper would state, quote, The radar, the sea return, the center of the scope was just a white blob and the Fitzgerald was disappearing into the sea, end quote. At 7.39 p.m., Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson radioed on the distress frequency to state he could not pick up the Edmund Fitzgerald. He then contacted the upbound ship, the Nanfree, and was told that she could not pick up the ship on radar either. At 9.03 p.m., Captain Cooper reported the Evan Fitzgerald missing to the Coast Guard. With no search and rescue vessels that could handle the waves, the Coast Guard told the Arthur M. Anderson to turn around and look for survivors. At 10.30 p.m., all commercial vessels in or around Whitefish Bay were told to assist in the search. The SS William Clay Fort, the SS Hilda Magene, and the Wood Rush all attempted to look for survivors. The SS Hilda Magene would have to turn back due to the weather, though. The Canadian Coast Guard and the Ontario Provincial Police then began a three-day search along the beaches of Lake Superior to find any sign of the ship. Debris was found along the beaches and on Lake Superior, including lifeboats and rafts, but no crew were ever found. Gere Bennett of the Coast Guard would state, quote, There's a lot of debris, but we haven't found anything that's a part of the ship, only things that have been washed off, we are assuming the ship sunk, end quote. There is still no trace of survivors in the Great Lakes freighter Edmund Fitzgerald, which capsized in Lake Superior last night. From Thunder Bay, Jim Simonac. We don't know whether the 729-foot ore carrier, the Edmund Fitzgerald, broke in half, capsized, or nosedived into Lake Superior. But its disappearance last night was sudden. There wasn't even a mayday or even an SOS. The boat was on radar surveillance for 10 minutes by an accompanying boat, but about 7.30 last night it vanished. Winds were gusting up to 80 miles an hour, and waves were swelling to 25 and 40 feet on the lake. The Edmund Fitzgerald is at the bottom, and there's no doubt about that. The search helicopters have already found considerable debris. Lieutenant William Holtz of the U.S. Coast Guard base in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, says the vessel has been officially declared lost. Well, the search is continuing. 
we have a number of merchant vessels in the area assisting us in collecting debris, uh, two life rafts and uh, two lifeboats and a number of life jackets have been positively identified as coming from the Fitzgerald. The Coast Guard Cutter Naugatuck is presently in the area assisting in the collection of debris. What type of conditions are this afternoon? The winds are from the northwest at about 12 to 18 miles an hour and the seas are approximately three to four feet. And there's been no sign of life? No, we have not received any sign of uh, survivors or any other life. The vessel owned by the Ogilvy Norton Company of Cleveland, Ohio, was captained by Ernest McSorley, the shipping company's senior captain. 29 crew members are missing, and an official of the company says he has no knowledge of a report that there may have been five women on board, wives of the crew members. The vessel left Duluth, Minnesota Sunday afternoon, carrying 26,000 tons of taconite iron ore pellets for Detroit. Another ore carrier, the Arthur M. Anderson, was 10 miles behind the Edmund Fitzgerald. It weathered the storm on the lake, and it watched the other boat disappear off radar. Its captain isn't talking today. He's in seclusion at the United States Steel Building in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Jim Semenek, CBC News, Thunder Bay. A life raft would be found from the Edmund Fitzgerald a few days after the ship disappeared, but it contained no trace of the missing crew. Helicopters involved in the search also saw a large oil slick near the last position of the ship. With her sinking, the Edmund Fitzgerald took 29 crew with her beneath the waves, ranging from 20 years old to 63 years old. The ship had joined 240 other ships that had sunk at the Whitefish Point since 1816. The ship's value was also listed at $24 million, making it the greatest financial loss in the history of the Great Lakes. Dolores Ulrich, the daughter of Captain McSorley, would stay, quote, The sea was his life. He loved his boat. It was their company's flagship. His whole life was built around the ship, end quote. Richard Bishop, the first cook of the Edmund Fitzgerald, was supposed to report on the ship just before it left on its fateful voyage, but he was laid up with an ulcer for a month. As he was about to board, his condition flared up again and he had to stay behind. He would state, quote, I didn't believe it. I still don't, end quote. It would not take long to find the ship. There were reports that a ship was found on November 13th, suspected to be the Edmund Fitzgerald, but confirmation would come after sonar equipment was used later in that day. A spokesperson with the Coast Guard would state, quote, while the ship hasn't positively been identified, we are pretty certain it's the Fitzgerald. End quote. Confirmation came on November 14th when the Edmund Fitzgerald was discovered 24 kilometers west of Dead Man's Cove, Ontario, in Canadian waters at a depth of 530 feet. Memorial services would be held for the lost crew soon after. On November 17th in Toledo, Ohio, 450 people came out, including families and friends, to remember the crew. Nearby at the Bay View Naval Armory, a service was held with a trumpeter playing taps while a wreath was placed on a Coast Guard vessel. The wreath would be dropped in the water in memory of the crew. A preliminary report of the sinking would come out only a few days later, stating the ship had broken in two according to the scans done. The report would also state the ship had suffered a broken security railing and was taking on water through the open vents before going down. Even after the preliminary hearing and report, officials were no closer to figuring out what happened to the ship than before, but structural failure from a large wave was the most commonly accepted reason for the sinking. The U.S. Navy would take an unmanned submersible to the wreck from May 20th to 28th, 1976, where it was found the ship was in two large pieces on the bottom of the lake. The bow section was sitting upright in the mud, 52 meters from the stern section, which was capsized at a 50-degree angle from the bow. A large amount of cargo was scattered around the wreckage. Four years later, in 1980, Jean-Michel Cousteau, son of Jacques Cousteau, 
took the first man submersible to the Edmund Fitzgerald, and based on what they saw, they speculated the ship had broken up on the surface. Over the course of the next 15 years, several expeditions would be conducted to the wreck in the hope of determining how the ship sunk. Fred Shannon would form Deep Quest Limited, and his company would conduct seven dives, taking 42 hours of underwater video of the ship. Shannon's group would discover the remains of a crew member dressed in coveralls and wearing a life jacket, lying face up on the lake bottom. It was Shannon's belief the crew knew there was a possibility of the ship sinking, and that a massive structural failure caused the ship to break apart on the surface. In 1995, Joseph B. McInnes led several dives to the ship and retrieved the bell from the ship. A replica bell was put in its place and a beer can was left on the pilot house of the ship. Today it's calm, but still a little eerie out on Lake Superior at the site the Fitz went down. That's because no one is certain what happened. World-renowned underwater explorer Joe McInnes and his team of scientists are hoping to uncover the story. I have always wanted to come up here and, uh, and come with uh, a submarine and take a look up close to see, uh, to see what the story meant. That story lies preserved in the cold, dark waters of the big lake they call Gichigumi. It's also preserved in the minds of the people who live in the Sioux. They remember the freighter Anderson attempting to guide the Fitz to safety. The announcer came on and said that there was a ship in trouble up in Whitefish Bay. And the guy on the Fitzgerald, he said that uh, he had six feet of water on deck. He's sitting in a nice warm room, wind or not outside, and thinking there's 29 men on that boat. And uh, the other guy in the, in the Anderson said, I see him on the radar. It was an awful feeling. Said, well, I've lost him. It was dead silence, and he said, we just have to conclude that the Fitzgerald was gone. U.S. Coast Guard Captain Jimmy Holbaugh commanded the search and rescue team. We got to the scene about uh, probably 23, 22, 23 hours later at night. Um, we turned on our ice lights and we'd been searching about 20 minutes. Um, and we picked up a life ring light flash. There was no sign of survivors no bodies. First we come across the lifeboat, and then we come across the rubber raft, and uh, then we come across another part of a lifeboat that had been ripped right in half. It went so quick that they were still probably in their staterooms, and their bunks. So you, you know that they're probably still in the ship. There are two theories as to how that crew went down. Either water came in from above through hatches on the upper deck, or the Fitz hit a shoal. McInnes' team surfaced with few clues. Extensive damage on the bow, uh, forward uh, on the uh, port, port side bottom. Uh, we didn't expect to see that much damage. We'll probably be able to recreate the last few minutes of the Fitzgerald. But as to why she filled with water, uh, whether did she hit the shoal or did the water come over the top of her, I'm not sure that we'll ever know that. So the mystery continues and the legend lives on. It's almost 20 years since it happened. 
and that ship won't leave me alone. It'll be 19 years this fall that the mighty Fitz went down in this lake. An American ship, Canadian waters, a crew mourned by both countries. Their families gather for a memorial service every year. A church bell tolls 29 times, once for each crewman, now a part of the legend of the Edmund Fitzgerald. There have been subsequent restrictions on diving to the ship. Under the Ontario Heritage Act, dive to the ship require a license now. Regulations by the Ontario government have also put a 500-meter area around the Edmund Fitzgerald, protecting it as a watery grave. While the weather was the main factor in the sinking, subsequent investigations found there were other contributing factors. One was the National Weather Service had predicted the storm would move south of Lake Superior, and the National Weather Service failed to accurately predict what wave heights would be on November 10th. Navigational charts were also found to be inaccurate and were based on Canadian surveys done in 1916 and 1919. New surveys revealed that a shoal ran 1.6 kilometers farther east than shown on the charts, and this may have resulted in the ship foundering on the shoal during the storm. In the 1976 preliminary inquiry, Captain Albert Javecki would state, quote, The shoals react upon ships. The ships take a beating. The shoals cause them to roll and pitch, shake and vibrate. It's more turbulent. End quote. The lack of watertight bulkheads have also been listed as a contributing factor in the sinking, and many believe that if the cargo holds had watertight subdivisions, the ship would have made it to safety in Whitefish Bay. There are also several theories as to why the ship sank or broke apart on the surface. In 2005, computer simulations were run that showed the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking at the eastern edge of the area of high winds, where the winds were hitting 80 kilometers hour in excess. The simulation showed that every 1 in 100 waves reached 36 feet in height, and every 1 in 1,000 reached 46 feet. With the ship heading east-southeast, those waves would have caused it to roll heavily. Another hypothesis is that there was a rogue wave, which would have been much higher than the other waves. Three rogue waves, now called the Three Sisters, were reported near where the Edmund Fitzgerald was when it sank. Each of these waves was believed to be 33% higher than the normal waves. If the ship was hit by these three waves in succession, the first wave would have put a large amount of water on the deck. Unable to drain away the water before the second wave hit, more water was put on the deck. The third wave was then added on top of the previous two waves swamping the deck with far too much water. Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson would state his ship was, quote, hit by two 30 to 35 foot seas about 6.30 p.m., one bearing the aft cabins and damaging a lifeboat by pushing it right down onto the saddle. The second wave of this size, perhaps 35 foot, came over the bridge deck, end quote. He would say later in an official report, quote, Then the Anderson just raised up and shook herself off of all that water, baroof, just like a big dog. Another wave, just like the first one or bigger, hit us again. I watched those two waves head down the lake towards the Fitzgerald, and I thought those were the two that sent him under. End quote. He then added there was a possibly a third wave that hit the ship and then continued on in the direction of the Edmund Fitzgerald around the same time the ship sank. With the Edmund Fitzgerald already having a list and moving slower than normal, it would have allowed the water to remain on deck longer than usual. The structural failure hypothesis adds to this by stating modifications to the ship's winter load line allowed for larger waves to cause stress fractures in the hull. One maritime historian, Frederick Stonehouse, stated after viewing video footage of a survey in 1989 that due to the extent of the cargo wreckage on the worksite, the stern likely floated on the surface for a short time, spilling its cargo out into the lake, which meant the two sections did not sink at the same time. In 1977, it was theorized that the sinking was caused by ineffective hatch closures, which resulted in water from the waves getting into the cargo hold. 
This flooding continued through the day until it caused a fatal loss of buoyancy for the ship and the M. Fitzgerald would suddenly sink without warning. But it's believed by many, including the crew's family and labor organizations, that this theory is unfounded. One friend of Captain McSorley and a longtime sailor himself, Lyle MacDonald, would say the claim of hatch covers not being closed properly was a slur on the honor of McSorley. He would say, quote, As a commercial fisherman on Lake Superior, I have lived the day and night of the Edmund Fitzgerald many, many times. End quote. In the first preliminary inquiry in 1975, there was a testimony from Lieutenant William Paul of the Marine Inspection Office, who stated that four hatches did have small fractures caused by loading and unloading of cargo. He would say, quote, It was nothing serious enough to hold the vessel for major repairs. End quote. Following the sinking, several lawsuits were launched by families, including two widows of the crewmen, who filed a $1.5 million lawsuit against Northwestern Mutual and its operators. Another $2.1 million lawsuit was also filed. The company would pay compensation to the families of the crew members 12 months in advance of official findings of the probability cause of a sinking, on condition of confidentiality. The sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the subsequent U.S. Coast Guard investigation would result in many recommendations to changes in shipping practices on the Great Lakes. This included having survival suits required on ships in each crew quarters, with strobe lights fixed onto life jackets. A lower and sea positioning system was implemented on the Great Lakes in 1980, followed by GPS in the 1990s. Emergency positioning indicating radio beacons would also be installed on all Great Lake vessels for accurate location information in the event of a disaster. The National Weather Service would also revise its method for predicting wave heights, and navigational charts for Lake Superior were also improved to provide greater accuracy and detail. There have been several tributes to the sinking in both Canada and the United States. The ship's bell retrieved from the wreck is engraved with the names of the 29 who lost their lives in the disaster. At the Dawson Great Lakes Museum in Detroit, an anchor from the ship that was lost in an earlier trip is on display. Artifacts from the wreck are also on display in several museums and communities along Lake Superior on the American and Canadian sides. In 2015, the Royal Canadian Mint commemorated the Edmund Fitzgerald with a silver coin. But by far, the most famous tribute to the ship and its sinking is courtesy of Canadian singing legend Gordon Lightfoot. Lightfoot would state he was inspired to write the song after seeing the name of the ship misspelled two weeks after the sinking in Newsweek. He felt this dishonored the memory of those who died, so he crafted the song. The song, released in August 1976, became a massive hit in Canada and the United States, and it would reach number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and is the second most successful signal of Lightfoot's career. And as I close out this episode, we're going to play some of that song. In a musty old hall in Detroit, they prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man. lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Edmund Fitzgerald. Next week, we're looking at the famous Quebec Winter Carnival. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, 
and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean, CBC, Wikipedia, The Windsor Star, Edmonton Journal, Kingston Whig Standard, Ottawa Journal, Ottawa Citizen, The Sioux Star, Montreal Star, and Shipwreck Museum. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.